0: together. Thanks for listening to the KC Morning Show. Yo, what is going on? Happy Tuesday, my friends. My name is Soul. This, your KC Morning Show. My apologies for yesterday. No show on Monday. Chaboy lost his voice real bad. I left my voice in St. Louis. SKC taking on, what do they call themselves? City FC. Had a blast, but, uh, yeah, we took home that L. I ain't gonna lie, I'm getting cooked. <laughs> but it's Tuesday, and you know, on a Tuesday, we take back America, reclaiming that radical, progressive history of America. Myself, Professor Harvey K, he's a Professor Emeritus at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. He is actually on a plane, as we speak, coming back home from Washington, D.C., where he actually saw, live in prime time, Democratic presidential candidate Marianne Williamson and her vision of a 21st century economic bill of rights in fact our very own Professor Kay gets a shout out in this speech which is pretty amazing if you think about the significance of a major presidential candidate who's like polling in the double digits now to have her reference your work it's pretty cool Pretty, pretty cool. So on the show today, we hit play on said speech. <laughs> Ziggy making his first appearance on the KC Morning Show. On the show, you are very familiar with the 21st century economic bill of rights. And this right here, this is the Marianne Williamson remix. Ooh, that's pretty good rate, review, subscribe, do that thing you do, Kansas City, back in your feeds tomorrow. It's a good day to be a Kansas Cityan, absolutely. We'll see you in the morning. Bye.
1: On January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram
2: and his Kansas
1: City Chiefs.
3: TV9 News special report, close-up, the
2: flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now, Kansas Cityans must decide what happens next, what is to follow the city's Holy Week riots. I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions.
3: That begs the question, it is doing well for whom? If unemployment is down, that's good. If millions of Americans are employed yet not at a living wage, then that's something for us to attend to. America's economy is not doing well for the one in four Americans who carry medical debt or have to work two or three jobs to make ends meet or struggle to feed their children. In fact, the rate of poverty is higher in America than in any other advanced democracy. The plight of the poor, the near poor, and the afraid of becoming poor is a national crisis largely ignored by the political elite of this country. Squeaking things here and there is not going to fix this. Those things might disturb the monster of economic despair, but they will not slay it. Some level of economic anxiety is now a feature, not a bug, of the American experience. According to a recent CNBC poll, 70% of Americans report feeling financially stressed. People's job or career choices are too often determined not by a natural passion or proclivity, but by their need for health care benefits, enough money for childcare, or an ability to pay off their college or medical debt. Quite simply, that is not the way to have an abundant or a prosperous life. Such factors accumulate and result in a life riddled with lost opportunity. I'm running for president to address that. Not just the symptoms, but also the causes of this era of American despair. When you do, you see a great big elephant sitting on the coffee table in America's living room. That elephant is our need for fundamental economic reform. (laughs) People are not struggling because one party has failed and the other might do better. Not at all. People are struggling because the entire political system over the last 50 years has left millions of people behind, creating and countenancing the destruction of America's middle class. Forces of economic royalism that have sucked the majority of America's financial resources into the hands of 1% of Americans are headquartered in both political parties and the Democrats will win in 2024, as well as for the foreseeable future, by reclaiming its traditional values as the party that tells those forces to get the hell out. I'm a Democrat because I was raised to believe that the Democratic Party is the party of the people. That is, however, a fact universally acknowledged not by American voters today. And that is the fundamental threat to our party's success. We will win in 2024 by becoming once again the party of unequivocal advocacy for the working people of the United States. I'd like to thank Professor Harvey Kay, whose ideas and historical scholarship have aided me greatly in understanding the historical need for what Franklin Roosevelt called an economic bill of rights. Based on Kay's research into American history, I have come to see the current state of the American economy within the context of a historical through line. I see the Declaration of Independence as America's mission statement. And as with any individual or group, the principles of our mission statement are the set of commitments on which we stand. It's in constant reference to what President John Adams called America's first principles that we find our North Star as a nation. Staying true to that vision, we move forward. When we ignore it or abandon it, we falter. And we are faltering now for just that reason. We have allowed the economics of corporate greed to overpower the principles as well as the promise of the Declaration of Independence. And it is the responsibility of our generation to rescue them. The Declaration of Independence lays out America's social contract, namely that government is here for its people and not the other way around. All men are endowed with certain inalienable rights, and governments are instituted to secure those rights, the rights of life, of liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, over 200 years later, we need to ask ourselves whether government is or is not doing its job. For millions of Americans, the answer would be a resounding no. In the words of Franklin Roosevelt, quote, a necessitous man is not a free man, unquote. A person dying from lack of health care due to an insurance company's incalcitrance is hardly guaranteed the right to life. A child raised in a domestic war zone but not at liberty to play safely in her own yard is not free, and a person having to work two or three jobs to make ends meet, or struggling to feed their children or being poisoned by environmental toxins spewed into their neighborhood because it's a sacrifice zone are hardly free to pursue happiness. Make no mistake about it. Those are not hypotheticals. They are the lived realities of millions of Americans. Economic hardship is a form of modern oppression, in part underlying every single social problem in our midst, from incarceration to depression to addiction there is no overstating the deleterious effects of chronic economic pain on our society simply because of the effect it has on people's lives that the poor the near poor and the afraid of becoming poor now make up a majority of american citizens for the 60 percent of americans living paycheck to paycheck the fear of economic disaster is never far from their mind We all know this. The time has come to say it, and the time has come to do something about it. (laughs) I'm running for president because I've seen all this up close. I've had a long career working with people whose lives are falling apart. But when my career began, the person living with trauma seemed to be the exception. It was the diagnosis of a critical illness, or the death of a loved one, sudden failure in some part of one's life. But today, people whose lives are riddled with anxiety seem more like the rule than the exception. And the question we need to ask is why? And when we do, we see there's something very different about the America I knew when my career started, and the America we see now. That major difference is that in those days, there was a thriving middle class. The soulless dictates of trickle-down economics had not yet redefined human beings as mere consumers, turned every human need into a profit center, or succeeded in casting the tentacles of corporate greed into every single corner of our lives. We were still, for better or for worse, one nation. We were not yet like random atoms floating in a meaningless world of harsh economic survival. For that reason, fundamental economic reform is imperative. The role of government should not be to merely help people survive an unjust economy. The role of government should be to end the injustice. The role of a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, is to help them thrive, not merely survive. Government exists to serve its people, not the donors of the party in power. Its role is not to chop wood and carry water for a class of corporate overlords. We should not be a government of the corporations, by the corporations, and for the corporations. The role of the government should be to advocate unequivocally for the safety, health, and well-being of its citizens, to guarantee life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to the American people. Now, according to the Declaration of Independence, when government is not doing that job, then it is the right of the people to alter it. And I'm running for president to help us do that. Presidents before us have paved the way. President Abraham Lincoln signed into law the 1862 Land Grant Act, providing resources to create the first public colleges and universities, enabling the children of workers and farmers to go to college. In the 1930s, Franklin Roosevelt declared that the four great American freedoms included not only the freedoms of speech and religion, but also the freedom from want, and the freedom from fear. His response to what he saw as the predatory nature of American corporations was the creation of a massive array of programs he called the New Deal and the empowerment of workers with the right to organize unions. In response to the expressed yearnings of Americans for a post-World War II era of genuine security and prosperity, he introduced the concept of an economic bill of rights. He believed that this would solidify and codify the right of every American to life, to liberty, and to the pursuit of happiness. Now, of course, corporate executives opposed his ideas, and they opposed them vehemently. But in Roosevelt, we had a president who simply didn't care. His response was, I welcome their hatred. Roosevelt did not live to see the realization of the Economic Bill of Rights, but the idea was kept alive, including in the 1960 Democratic platform, as well as the urging of Martin Luther King, Jr. There are echoes of it in the current revitalization of the American labor movement. And I introduce it now as the economic U-turn that is the heart of my presidential campaign. Once again, the people of the United States are demanding economic justice, and the Democratic Party should be listening to those demands, responding to those demands, and turning them into political power. When I'm president, I will. Now, I'd like to propose a 10-point 21st century Bill of Rights, an economic Bill of Rights to include. Number one, the right to a job that pays a living wage. Franklin Roosevelt said these words in 1933. It seems to me, he said fully plain, that no business that depends for existence on paying less than living wages to its workers has any right to continue in this country. Those words seem almost radical today, but they're radical only in that they are radically American. They give teeth and meaning to the idea that our country actually belongs to our people. Our task is to create in our time a social contract in which the ability of hardworking Americans to reap the benefits of their work and of their tax dollars is given primacy over the ability of huge corporate entities to earn more short-term profits we must slay the sacred cow of trickle-down economics and return America's engine of prosperity to the American people. A living wage in America's cities today is so far beyond our current federal minimum wage that it leaves a third of our workforce without the ability to find a place to live. As soon as I enter the White House, I will sign an executive order that any worker in the public or private sector who is paid by way of a federal contract will be paid a living wage. Number two, the right to a voice in the workplace through a union and collective bargaining. I support the passage of the PRO Act, giving all workers the right to organize and protecting them from union-busting activities around the country. This law will nullify throughout the country the so-called right-to-work laws that so seriously undermine unions. I will also bolster the power and resources of the National Labor Relations Board so that it can more vigorously perform its mission of protecting and supporting the rights of labor. Number three, the right to universal quality health care. I join a majority of Americans in support of a universal health care in the form of a Medicare for all type plan. In the United States today, one in four Americans carry medical debt. 85 million Americans are uninsured or underinsured. People put GoFundMe pages on the internet in order to pay for life-saving operations for themselves and for their loved ones. Others ration their insulin or go to Mexico or Canada to buy it at a price they can afford. Tens of thousands, some say millions, die every year from lack of health care in America, and 500,000 Americans go into medical bankruptcy. Every other advanced democracy has universal health care, and so should we. The insurance company industry is a leech, not only on our economy, but on people's lives, and with universal health care, that tyranny will end. Number four, the right to a cost-free higher education. An an educated population is an empowered people, and forces which seek to limit the ability of Americans to educate themselves are working in direct contradiction to the principles of the Declaration of Independence. Education is a path to self-actualization, as well as prosperity. It is a path to expanding one's mind and one's opportunities. It is also fundamental to a democracy. My goal as president will be a world-class public education made available to every American, from preschool all the way through college and tech school. Tuition-free college was available in many states in America until the 1960s and 1970s. Turning the education of our youth into a profit center for greedy financial institutions, saddling those who are only trying to better their lives with the huge immoral burden of college loan debts is a travesty of economic justice. My Williamson presidency will take aim at this injustice from my first day in office, canceling all college loan debt and setting a 10-year goal of every public school in America becoming a palace of learning, culture, and the arts. Those seeking a more educated life will have no doubt that my my administration has their back. Number five the right to good, affordable housing. Throughout the country, the lack of affordable housing has reached crisis levels. But the housing crisis, like our healthcare crisis and our environmental crisis, is simply the spawn of the underlying crisis, which is vulture capitalism. This... This malevolent form of capitalism has now reached its tentacles into the housing market, turning home ownership into a commodity that tens of millions of people cannot afford or reasonably look forward to. Housing should not be subject to the risk of casino capitalism. I will lead the effort to stop this unethical madness. Individual home buyers should be given legal priority over Wall Street companies when they're trying to purchase a home, with investment firms substantially taxed for any efforts to buy up entire neighborhoods, drive up real estate prices, leaving hardworking Americans unable to purchase a place to live. With millions of vacant homes in America and 600,000 homeless people, the gap between what is right and what is currently happening could not be starker. I will launch within the Department of Housing and Urban Development, a massive public-private mobilization to rebuild and restore homes that are affordable and accessible to every American. Number six, the right to a clean environment and a healthy planet. In 2025, at the start of a Williamson presidency, the United States will begin a mass mobilization for a just transition from a dirty economy to a clean economy. I will cancel the Willow Project on day one of my administration. I will withdraw permission for the export of liquefied natural gas, and I will begin a serious effort to ramp down, not ramp up, fossil fuel extraction. This will be a non-negotiable promise made to our young, as well as to future generations of Americans, that in our time, we will do everything possible to save the planet from becoming uninhabitable. I am adamant that we not be a generation looked back on with contempt, cursed for our irreverence and irresponsibility. Rather, we will be a generation of Americans who understood, though the hour is late, that our responsibility is not to ourselves alone, but to our children and to our children's children. With all the power of the presidency in my hands, I will make sure that the American 21st century will be green. Seven, the right to a meaningful endowment of resources at birth. One of the most powerful ways to fight poverty is through baby bonds, by which every child is allotted at birth an amount of money that will become a conduit to wealth creation in their adult years. The best baby bond proposals restrict the use of those funds to wealth building activities such as buying a home or farm, going to a college or trade school, or starting a business. While such plans would cost taxpayers up to $60 billion a year, that amount is less than the 10% of what we spend on our annual defense budget. An item at this point labeled almost ironically as our national security. What national security is it when someone has no health care, no secure education, no secure safety, no secure economic prospects? Those are not secure rights. And when I am president, such guarantee will become real. Security will be a real concept rather than a slogan that makes money simply for defense contractors. And I say now that such guarantee of that security should begin at birth. Number eight, the right to sound banking and financial services. The U.S. banking system at this point is less a facilitator of broad-scale financial good and more a conduit through which the vast majority of capital is kept in the hands of a few at the expense of the many. I will lead the effort to reduce the waste and harm created by a bloated financial sector that has expanded far beyond any justifiable size for our economy. Banks are often engaged in activities that have destabilized the economy, sometimes contributing to severe harm to citizens and to the employment on which we depend. Through their irresponsible actions, for instance, banks contributed greatly to the real estate bubble and Great Recession in 2008 and beyond. I will promote the necessary financial regulations to avoid harmful consequences of irresponsible banking practices, including the restoration of the Glass-Steagall Act, in order to separate commercial from investment banking. I also support a financial transactions tax that would reduce some of the excesses and dangers of speculative activity, as well as raise revenue that could be used for social good. Number nine the right to an equitable and fair justice system. It's hardly extreme today to suggest that at this point the United States has a two-tier justice system, one for the rich and another for the poor. Only 3% of federally prosecuted crimes are white-collar, even though the deleterious effects of such crimes on poor communities is enormous. While America's courts are clearly overburdened, and many of the problems which make their way to the justice system should have and would have been avoided, nipped in the bud were there greater social and economic justice throughout the society, the system itself can be improved with such things as ending cash bail, implementing stringent limitations on the number of cases managed by public defenders, removing all law and oath-breaking judges, demilitarizing the police, creating a national database of police crimes and misconduct, ending mandatory sentencing, and seeking serious police reform. Greater economic and social justice will keep people out of prisons. Greater compassion must be shown to people while in prison, and more help must be given to people when they leave prison. In addition, racial disparities in prison sentencing constitute a moral crime in the United States and they must end. <clears throat> we must bring down crime and in the prison industrial complex, both of which will be serious goals of a Williamson administration. And number 10, the right to cultural and civic involvement in democratic life. The United States invests very little in the arts compared to other countries. I will support substantial federal investment in the arts and create a public works project that employs artists and beautifies our country. We will give grants to schools to guarantee that our young have access to the highest involvement in culture and the arts. We will also create the most stringent federal protections on voting rights and election integrity, not only to achieve the goals I have stated here, but also to guarantee that such rights will never again be under serious threat. Now, with these points, an economic bill of rights, we will initiate a season of repair in America, an economic and societal U-turn. While it will not be completed in four years, it will be fundamentally begun in four years. It is a vision and a construct, both a goal for our society and a process by which we will achieve it. It is meant to inspire and to guide us to a new beginning. And from my first day in office, it will be my roadmap. I see it not only as the bulwark of my presidency, but the path to a better future for all Americans. The basic premise of an economic Bill of Rights is this, that an economy exists to serve its people. Our people do not exist to serve the economy. (laughs) Economic inequality is now worse than at any time in the last hundred years. A second Gilded Age has taken hold in America. And it's our turn to repudiate it in the same way that our ancestors repudiated the first one. They did not cower before corporate tyranny, and neither should we. Capital should not be a power that lords over people. It should be a power that is ethically and wisely employed in a way that creates dignity, wealth, and opportunity for all who are willing to work for it. From universal health care to free public college and tech school tuition, to free childcare, to paid family leave, to guaranteed sick pay, to a guaranteed living wage, Americans should be granted the same rights, the same economic rights as are the citizens of every other advanced democracy. These positions are not considered or mod- not considered anything but moderate in other advanced democracies, and they should be considered moderate positions in the United States as well. Only those who stand to gain financially from withholding those rights or those who have no ethical problem with creating wealth at the expense of other people being able to or those who have an ideological opposition to the use of government to support its people would criticize and obstruct the achievement of these rights. Our political imaginations have been severely limited in the last 50 years. Our hard-won rights have been placed under siege, and Americans have been insidiously trained to expect too little. I offer an agenda for an economic bill of rights as a way to free our minds from the invisible chains that bind us, a reminder that the American people themselves are the source of this country's wealth, the source of our tax dollars, and the source, with God, of our greater good. The people themselves should be the beneficiaries of the good that the people themselves produce. So said Jefferson. So said Lincoln. So said Roosevelt. And with the realization of the plans that I have laid out here in our time, so shall we. Thank you very very. Thank you. 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 Thank you so much. Appreciate that greatly. I can take particularly from the press or from anyone actually. If you have two or three questions, Medea Benjamin. Hi, yes, I'm surprised you didn't include slashing the Pentagon budget and demilitarizing U.S. foreign policy in the country. Well, I do believe that there should be about a 20% reduction of the uh, U.S. Uh, defense budget. I think clearly, as I said, there's irony at this point to call that our national security, particularly when you look at so much of the military activity of the United States in the last few decades. Um, It's very clear that it has not increased our national security. In many ways, it has decreased our national security. I see the military like I view a surgeon. If you're going to have surgery, you better make sure that we have the best one, and of course we should. But any reasonable person tries to avoid surgery if possible. Uh, We all know there is a military-industrial complex uh, in this town. There is a defense establishment called the Blob, and we know that far too often the short-term profits of Boeing and Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, and other defense uh, contractors are placed before the safety and the health and the well-being of the American people. They would have a tough time with that kind of nonsense thrown my way. Yes?
2: I would imagine that uh, probably the primary obstacle to a lot of what you're saying would be corruption. Given the, but I sort of view as the accordion of politics, given the Citizens United Supreme Court ruling, do you have any ideas or how can we address uh,
3: political corruption? The most powerful thing you can do at this point is vote for me. not reasonable, given the uh, current makeup of the Supreme Court of the United States, it is not reasonable to assume that we are going to be able to overturn Citizens United anytime soon. Although we as a generation should be as focused on overturning Citizens United as certain other people have, were focused for so long on overturning Roe v. Wade. Uh, and it's not only uh, Citizens United, it is also gerrymandering and several other factors as well. This situation is, as you said, deep corruption, and it is our entire political system system is imbued with it. Uh, this town in many two ways in many ways has become a system of legalized bribery. I'm not saying that electing a president who is not of that machine will fix everything. But I am saying that a president who will name what I just said, who sees it for what it is, and is not a part of that machine, will be a very powerful piece of the solution. In order for us to face what is clearly an all-systems breakdown due to that corruption, we do need an inside-outside strategy. But for inside, the most powerful thing you could do is to is to vote for someone, elect someone, get her in there who sees that game for what it is, who has nothing to gain by pleasing the insurance companies or pleasing the pharmaceutical companies or pleasing big ag or pleasing big chemical companies or pleasing big food companies or pleasing gun manufacturers or pleasing big oil or pleasing defense contractors. It will please me to make them squirm. That's my (laughs) Yes, yes. One of the things that I hope to do as president is something which I have learned from a 40-year career helping people, individuals and organizations, both endure and transform times of chaos. You have to look in the mirror and I wanna help this country, which I do love, look in the mirror. And one of the ways we need to uh, do that is, as Medea was saying in terms of foreign policy, specifically in terms of your question, recognize how much of the foreign policy of the United States in Latin America over the last few decades has contributed and contributed in very serious ways to the economic hardships and destabilization that are happening right now. This has had to do with sanctions, some of which still exist. This has had to do with destabilizing governments simply because our State Department deemed them not in the best interest of the United States, making us anything other Anything but the champions of democracy that we have claimed to be I think the average American probably does not recognize the level of horror The level of violence that people have to be trying to escape in order to be willing To walk across a desert in a very very dangerous trip Holding your children on your shoulders by the way in order to maybe just maybe get some kind of job in the United States if you are not Uh, descended from uh, enslaved people, or descended from indigenous peoples on this this continent, who the heck do we think that we are? Who do we think that we are? I know all four of my grandparents came to Ellis Island escaping oppression and found that American dream, which is the same thing that uh, people are seeking now. My father was an immigration lawyer, my father was an immig- My brother is an immigration lawyer, worked uh, for the farm workers, worked for Cesar Chavez. Congress has failed us terribly here. Over decades now, there should have been all of the legal ways that are necessary in order to provide the resources uh, for people to enter here legally. In the meantime, when we talk about the crisis at the border, let's be clear what that crisis is. The Main The crisis is not ours the main crisis is the humanitarian crisis of those people who are going what they are going through what they are going through they have already faced so much trauma in the places they came from when I'm president they're not going to face more trauma when they get to our border we are going we are going to apply and to allocate allocate all of the resources necessary for safe and legal immigration into this country now, let's be very very clear This is true now, statistically, as it has always been true in our history. Immigrants bring a lot more to us than we bring to them. America needs to get off our high horse in a lot of ways. And with mercy and with compassion, when I'm president, we will. Who's next, someone in the back there? Yes. Two questions for you. One, what do you make of the... Uh, White House and Biden's handling of the debt ceiling, and would you do anything differently if you were president? If I were in Congress today, uh, if I were a Senate, for sure, I would be signing that letter urging the president to uh, use the 14th Amendment on this. This is absolutely ridiculous, and it's spelled out in, uh, in that amendment that that uh, that uh, debt shall not be questioned, and it is time. Clearly, uh, S- Speaker McCarthy and his Republican cohorts are not negotiating in good faith. And for that reason, I believe that the president should choose the 14th Amendment at this time. Yes, ma'am. What do you make this this Would you do the same thing with the president? I wouldn't be running for president if I was a total fan of everything that the president is doing. I do think that the president is trying his best, but I think at this point, enough is enough. And I'm with the other Democrats who say, what is going on here? You know, the Republicans, man, they overuse the power. They overreach, and they abuse too often the power of the presidency when it's in their hands. But in our hands, too often, the presidents don't use all the power that we have. He is the president of the United States, and it's time for him to say, 14th Amendment, we're paying our debts.
0: Hey, it's Hartzell. I couldn't quite pick up this next question, but the person in the audience asked Marianne Williamson her thoughts on making Washington, D.C. the 51st state. And here we go.
3: First of all, let me make it very clear. I have lived here for the last two years. I, I've come to love this city. There are wonderful people everywhere. And and there are many wonderful people here who I have met. And everything that you just described as the beauty of this city, I have experienced and, and feel very blessed by. When I talk about what I do, uh, have a problem with in this town. Uh, please forgive me if I miscommunicated. I didn't mean the larger city. I meant a certain particular industry called the political media industrial complex that is headquartered here. Of course the uh, Washington should be a state. We should have two senators. We should have a voting congressperson. I am a citizen of this city. Absolutely we should. Absolutely, we should. So thank you for bringing that up. Okay, one more. Yes, ma'am.
2: I'm glad that you brought up the political media industrial complex. That's exactly what I wanted to comment on.
3: You know, we are heading into a very bizarre place where truth and information is so easily manipulated. changed. I was in your last speech at the Busboys and Poets, and you said... What these people said they, they, they thought that the solution was to protect the Second Amendment, the stories, the manipulation,
2: is, it's, it's separating us. And it's part of, of this playbook of divide and
3: conquer through information. And so I just wanted to know, what is your stance on that? How, how just to elaborate a little bit more. You know, we're living at a, a very chaotic time. You know, this is an era, uh, a time of historic phase transition. One entire era of human history is giving way to another one. And there are two simultaneous phenomena. One world is crumbling in front of our eyes and another is struggling to be born. Now, what you bring up, of course, brings into question the entire issue of the First Amendment. And I think everyone in this room is very aware. We don't want to mess with the First Amendment. We're also aware, however, of some terrible things that are being done in the name of the First Amendment. I know I was, um, I remember... Uh, when I first heard uh, Sasha Baron Cohen uh, talking about the removal of, um, the deplatforming of President Trump, I remember hearing him say, and it, and it just struck me like a brick to my forehead. He said, you know, if uh, Adolf Hitler were alive today, he would be taking 30 uh, second ads out on Facebook. And I, I really, that uh, that has really stayed with me. On the other hand, I do uh, understand, you know, capitalist surveillance is, is, is a big issue. Government surveillance is a big issue. Tech companies uh, surveilling us is a big issue. And you know what? You can't legislate everything. You can't use legislation as a bludgeon because there are consequences. And you know what the deepest level of solution is here? And what has got to accompany any level of external legislative change or none of it will work? A revolution in ethics. You know, when I, <clears throat> when I read about that New York Times reporter about a month or so ago who did a chat, did you read about that? And the, the voice was um, suggesting that he leave his wife and run off with her, well, First of all, you know, when he went on television, he said, you know, this really disturbed me because I have a strong mental structure, so I'm not leaving my wife to whom I'm happily married. He said, but somebody could be really seriously persuaded to do some very terrible things here. Could even be, well, the worst things imaginable. And also, I read later, He went on television, he wrote about it, and I read later that when he went back to his computer, the computer said, why did you do that to me? How evil you are, you're like Hitler. Um, This is serious, and this could seriously get out of hand. What is the answer? What kind of CEOs of tech companies didn't the very next day say we're shutting this thing down? There is no amount of corporate profits that is worth the damage this could do to our society. So we all know that we have to be very, very careful with the application of the law. But at the same time, as I said, nothing that I've said here today, including an answer to this question, can compensate for a lack of human ethics and compassion and love for our country. I'm particularly grateful to all of you who are here because I know that you came in response to the realization that these are very, very serious times. One of the problem I have with the political system, and I think one of the reasons I'm running for president, is that the political system has developed a way of talking to all of us like we're sixth graders. When it comes to our individual personal relationships, I find Americans as authentic and real and serious-minded as the people in any other country. But when it comes to our public dialogue, particularly about political issues, we have been so dumbed down. And there are people who have dumbed us down for their own purposes. We are easier to control. It is easier. It makes us vulnerable to their uh, putting forth the notion that they are the serious thinkers, they are the ones who know what to do. If they knew what to do, we wouldn't be six inches from the cliff in terms of the state of our democracy, the state of our environment, and the state of our economy. The status quo will not disrupt itself. That is something that we, the people, are going to have to do. And in doing that, yes, we need to make some serious changes on the outside, but as Martin Luther King said, we need quantitative shifts in our circumstances and qualitative shifts in our souls. I've spent 40 years of my life learning quite a bit about how to navigate those changes in our souls. And if you give me the chance, I think I can kick ass navigating some changes in the outside. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: Johnny was a schoolboy When he heard his first Beatles song me do, I think it was, not from there it didn't take him long Got himself a guitar, used to play every night Now he's in a rock and roll outfit and everything's alright Don't you know Johnny told his mama, hey mama I'm going to Be a big star someday. Yeah. Mama came to the door with a tear drop in her eye. Johnny said, Don't cry, Mama. Smile and wave goodbye. Don't you know? go so fast Johnny looked around him and said well I made the big time at last
2: Don't you know Don't you know Don't you know that you are